Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study class led by Pastor Jim Otte. For this episode and the next few episodes, we are doing something a little bit different. Instead of jumping right into a new series, we are unearthing early recordings of the podcast to bring to you. These were recorded during a whole different series, and we can't start with part one because we didn't think to record it at the time. So if you're new to the podcast or returning and thinking, why are we on part four when this is a whole different series? Don't worry, you didn't miss an episode or anything. We are just jumping around a little bit and offering a sneak peek from past classes. So without delaying any further, here is a part of a series titled Living the Life of Jesus's Beloved. Enjoy. All right, well, I guess we ought to get to our Bible study, actually. All right. So uh, where we are is in Philippians 2, and we're going to be working through uh, this part anyway is, is 3 through 18. So we remember that what sort of started all this is that Paul had made the comment or had made the the, the, uh, the command, if you will, the, in, in urging us, he started out by saying, conduct yourself, conduct your life worthy of the gospel that you've received in Jesus Christ. And so you see this, this part now is a continuation of that as he is sort of uh, explaining that further and saying, well, here's what I was really talking about. Here's what I really meant. So we pick it up in verse three, where he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So one of the things that Paul, I think he, he, uh, he realized from his own ministry, certainly from his own life, and he would have seen this in the other churches and the other congregations that he had started. And then he had left and gone off to start even, even more uh, churches that the biggest obstacle to working together, even in the body of Christ, where you have uh, people presumably who are gathered together under the umbrella of the gospel, right? The biggest obstacle to that is, is self-serving ambition. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It always, uh, it always amazes me how it uh, 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 causes other people to be shocked that there is selfishness in the Christian church. It, it just amazes me because I'll hear people say this all the time. I work, and I work with congregations around the district, so I get to hear a lot of this. But it always amazes me is that people will say, well, I just can't believe that Christians would act that way. Right. Or I just can't believe that people in a church would just think only of themselves and not of everybody else. As if somehow the devil is, has no interest in what goes on in a church and would pay no attention to us. Well, what Paul is reminding them and us of is the fact that selfishness or empty conceit is the greatest obstacle. So if that's the obstacle, what's the opposite of that, he says, is humility of mind. How many of you would say that humility is a strength of yours? 
Nobody wants to raise your hand because you're so humble. <laughs> well, okay, so let's figure out what that means. What is it? What is humility? What? And maybe it may be one of those things where you know it when you see it, right? And you know it when you don't see it, but it's hard to put your finger on kind of what it is, right? What is what would you say if, if you were to s- sort of build a humble person, okay, uh, what, would that, what would that look like? What would you notice? Yeah, Madeline. There's a book written on that. There's a book written on that? <laughs> but the title is Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear what she said? The book, <laughs> the book is written. It's, it's called Humility and How I Attained It. I love that. Yeah. Yes. And the author's your humble servant. Is that kind of what that is? Yeah, that's hilarious. Okay, so we all laugh because we know exactly, well, that wouldn't be in, the, in that humble thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Phil. Uh, somebody that's modest. Somebody that's modest. So like when they're complimented for something that they did, they kind of go mm-hmm, like that. Is that kind of what you mean? Kind of? Not so much as slumping down. They shun the spotlight maybe? Yeah, okay, yeah, that could be. Yeah, Richard? I, I uh, am stealing this. Yes, stealing. Uh, Wayne Geisler in our men's Bible study probably eight years ago mm-hmm. said, made this statement of humility is speaking the truth, period. So in other words, many times when we speak something, we then try to sell it. Mm. So you just say... You speak the truth. Speak the truth. And, and you don't worry about what you're thinking about what I said. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, it's just, it's, okay. to me, that's one of the clearest yeah, kind of the idea. that I've ever heard. Yeah, when you, see, when you see that in somebody, then they're not worried about what sort of pushback they're going to get or what people are going to think of them. I mean, they're just not even worried about that. They're, it's just speak the truth. Okay, all right. Anybody else humble? Anybody else humble? Is anybody else here humble? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Gina. Well, to me, it's a person. They don't do anything out of recognition for themselves. Okay. They're not focused on themselves. They, yeah. The, the importance for them is others, or you know, bringing glory to God, or yeah. focusing on other people. Okay. Not looking for any benefit for themselves sure. out of what they do or say. Okay, that's good. They're they're not seeking to bring any. Uh, glory or attention, or it's not all about that for them. Okay. Let me give you one word to describe humility or a humble person. That person's teachable. Teachable. Another word might be coachable. If you have ever uh, been involved in coaching, like kids or adults in sports and things like that, the people that are coachable, they're open to your influence. That's kind of another way of saying it. And if somebody is not humble, they're not open to your, they're not open to your coaching. They're not open to your influence. They're very, uh, very sure of themselves, and it's okay to be sure of yourself, but um, you're, not, you're not in a position where anybody else is going to be able to influence you and, and teachable and coachable. So that's why, how, how many teachers do we have here? Okay, how many of you are teachers? Uh, how many of you have encountered students who thought they already knew it all? <laughs> no, I mean, is this, is that, yeah, I mean, see, and what are you going to do then? How do, you, how do you help somebody grow? How do you help somebody progress? How do you help somebody learn 
if in their minds they know more than you do and, and they're not open to anything you have to say. That's the hardest nut to crack. Yeah. Okay. So humility really serves us well, whereas the opposite of that perhaps would be uh, arrogance, but he uses the word selfishness and empty conceit as that does not serve us well. We are not at our best when we are that way. Okay. We are not at our best. Um, and so what he says then is he says, it, he, it, if you stopped with this verse, regard uh, one another as more important than yourselves, it sort of ends up kind of sound like, like you have to walk through life feeling bad about yourself. But fortunately, he went on to kind of explain what he means is do not merely look out for your own interest, but what? Also, the interests of other people. So what you have is you have a balance, do you not? And so we could kind of draw this out. See, this is the other advantage of being here and not just listening online, is that whatever I get to draw on the board, you get to see. So see, there's an advantage to that. But you could just do it like this, okay? And here we have the balance of self-care and care for others. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what if you go through life and it's, the, it's out of balance in some way, right? Is there merit to the idea that I really have to do both in order to do each of them well? Yeah, of course. I can run myself into the ground, and that truly is a recipe for burnout. And where that hits a lot of people is who have, uh, they're real strong in compassion, and they have a real radar for other people. A lot of caregiver people uh, have that. And that's a gift, a wonderful gift from God. But oftentimes what happens is, is that this carries the biggest weight and the prospect of doing this seems selfish. So they say, oh, I couldn't possibly say no to somebody because that would be selfish and very unchristian and not loving at all. Well, okay, you can do that for a week and then you'll get sick. All right. And so then sometimes, have you ever noticed this, those of you that, that, that kind of roll that way? And I know because I roll that way too, okay? Um, when you get sick, that is a legitimate way of saying no to somebody. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> See, that's a blessing in getting sick. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not prescribing it at all. But when you get sick, okay, so if you get sick... And then you have somebody in your life that needs something from you. What can you say in order to say no to them? Oh, I can't. I'm just sick. And then if you're really good at it, you can cough over the phone. <laughs> uh, I just don't think I can make it today. Okay. And that's legitimate. That's accepted. And it also assuages your own guilt because that's the other part of it is you yourself feel guilty that you said no to somebody when, you know, you needed to take a break, you needed to take a vacation. So, you know, the idea is that good balance there of self-care and uh, care for others. Uh, I like what the Concordia Self-Study Bible said in the commentary. Yes. Not that everyone else is superior or more talented, but that Christian love sees others as worthy of preferential treatment. Yes, worthy of preferential treatment. <laughs> One of the things that was such a big deal in the Old Testament from God's perspective and from the prophets was to show no favoritism. And that's a theme that weaves its way through the New Testament as well in Jesus's own ministry and this idea that God does not play favorites, so neither should we. And favoritism sort of kicks in when we think about preferential treatment as an example of that. 
Okay, that's a great example of that. Uh, and, but again, it's the idea that he's saying, have a balance, care for yourself in a good way. So what's an example of self-care? Just can we think of an example? What's an example? Getting enough sleep. What, what, what? Getting enough sleep. Getting enough sleep. That's self-care. Right. What else? Yeah, Phil. Not overcommitting. Not overcommitting. Now, Phil, you are touching on something very, very near and dear to church life. Let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. Not overcommitting, which kind of means be selective about what you say yes to. Okay. So that's what that would be. Okay. What else? Yeah. What? What? Who said vacation? Vacation, you said that? I totally agree with that. Yeah. Okay, what else? Healthy eating. Healthy eating is a good one. Yes, what else? Exercise. Oh, now we're getting personal. <laughs> he said exercise. We better move on. <laughs> but it's true. No, it's true. Yeah, one more, Kim. Taking a spa day. <laughs> Taking a spa day. Is that place open on Sunday? Do you know? Yeah. All right. Well, let's look at uh, a couple of verses here. First Peter five, five and six says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So that's a good lesson in there that the exalting which we all sort of like that for that to happen once in a while is actually God's deal. And if you're aiming for it or if you're shooting for it, see, that's a good example of where you're trying to get something that you're not waiting for God to give you. So beloved life principle number seven is humility is the vessel of accepting our need, N-E-E-D, need for God's grace. Why is it so hard to be a recipient of God's grace? Well, yeah, we don't deserve it, but why? But if you, you would think that if we didn't deserve it, we would be, oh, oh, I can't get enough of it. But our natural instinct is to not want it. Why? Because who of us wants to admit that we need it? See, who needs God's grace? And don't say everybody, because I know that's the answer. That's the easy answer. People that need God's grace are people that are powerless without it. If I see myself as powerful, I'm going to say, I don't need God's grace. Why would I need God's grace? I'm, I'm powerful enough as it is. But if I'm going to be the recipient of something that is given as an unconditional gift that you do not earn, I'm not going to be the one to admit that because that means I can't live without it. That means that I'm that needy guy. That means that I'm that pitiful creature. See, and none of us wants to admit that. Yes, Stephen. Where does shame fit in? Where does shame fit in? That's a good question. Yeah, you're talking about being humble, but there's also shame. There is a shame thing. Okay. Yeah, like we read on Facebook, so-and-so body shamed somebody or something like that. Okay. All right. So what the message that shame sends is that um, no matter what, you're not worthy. And what you're not worthy of is love. You're not worthy of respect. 
You're not worthy of um, some uh, form of being treated in a, uh, not deferential, but certainly in an honest way. And so a lot of people we talk today about being kind of shame bound. And that shame boundness means that, you know how it is when, uh, when you mess up, and I, I know that doesn't really apply to anyone here, but we'll just imagine what that would be like, okay? When you mess up and you feel guilty, if the guilt doesn't get forgiven quickly, then what happens is shame kind of moves in. And what shame says is, see that you screwed up and then you'll never be able to make up for it. And because you're never able to make up for it, who would love you and who would want to be around you? And you are therefore not worthy of that. Okay, that's where shame fits in. So shame is a very, uh, it's a bit, can be a very insidious kind of thing. And that's, that's quite a bit different. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. That's one of the reasons why people don't approach God. Sometimes they're shamed. They feel like the shame. Yeah, I know. That's a, that's a tough one. Bob, you had your hand up earlier. I was just going to say, humility is when you realize who you are and who God is. Mm-hmm. And what God has done. That is correct. Yeah. 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 And I think there are some experiences in life that do a good job of teaching us that we are not in control, that God is in control. I think there's really some, and, and most of these experiences in life are painful and we really wouldn't want to go through them and want, would not wish them on other people. So how many of you have been in a hospital bed? Oh, there we go. And uh, somebody else is telling you when you can do stuff. <laughs> like wake up, like go to sleep. Like, here, stick your arm out because I'm going to stick something in it. You know, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you're really helpless in that sense, and you're not calling the shots. Those are the kinds of situations that remind us, what, of how powerless we really are. Yeah. And plus, you're not making yourself well. I mean, you know, that, that part, too. Yeah. The best place to learn that is in boot camp. Oh, boot camp. How many of you have been to boot camp? Oh, there we go. Now we have some real, we have some, some real learners there. Yeah, where they take away all your identity totally by, you know, shaving everything off and then you wear and they're yelling at you and just give you a number and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so see where humility begins and the sense of our need for God's grace, it really begins with our our recognition of the need we have for God and how dependent we are on God. And that's a hard sell sometimes for people who who really uh, I think um, uh, strive to be uh, sort of self-made people. You know, I pulled myself up from the bootstraps and I got myself and everything that I did, I got, you know, I did. That's really hard for those people to admit that there is in, in some way this need for God and a dependence on God. Our, our instinct is we want to be independent. I want to be my own person. I don't want to be dependent. And yet uh, dependence is, is exactly what we are. Well, let's look at Matthew 7 then, because this sort of lends itself to this as well. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's the goal? What's the goal? To see clearly. That's the goal. And sometimes it's the logs that we have in our own eyes that obscure our ability to see clearly. Now, once I see clearly, then what is the goal? To assist the brother. Yeah. With his spec. How many of you have found yourself to have laser-like, precise vision that can pick out the specks in other people's eyes? How many of you have that? It's sort of a, it's probably a gift of the spirit. I'm sure it is, David, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, you know, it's amazing how you can kind of look around the log in your own eye and then you can really kind of see the speck in somebody else's eye. It's just amazing. Yeah, Gina. Well, I've always thought it interesting in that verse is that he, re- he refers to the other person's as a speck. Yeah. But ours is a log. Yes. <laughs> So what would that say? That, what does that say to you that the other guy has the speck and we have the log? Well, I think it's a case of where because you're, you're, you're focusing so much and you're pointing fingers so much at that speck, yeah. that you have a lot that you're yes. not focusing on. on that's yourself. correct. And in fact, we're probably not even looking at ourselves. And that's his point is really kind of deal with your own log before you get so focused on everybody else's specs. Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of that. Sure. How many of you have ever had a corneal abrasion? Oh, okay. Medical, medical. Okay. How many of you have ever had a corneal abrasion? Okay. Now, I kind of think I know what that is, but you better explain it. All right. It's a scratch on the cornea of the eye. The scratch on the cornea of your eye. Okay. Yes. It's extremely painful. Yes. You can't do much of anything else. No, you can't. You deal with that. That's right. So that is an excellent point. So just so I can be clear that the point you're making is the one I'm getting, what, what is the point you're making? That you've got to deal with it first. Yep, got to deal with it first. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Oh, it's so, we're so blessed to have medical authorities here that can, can bring that, uh, that element to our class. All right, which is another reason to be here as opposed to just saying, oh, I can hear this on the Internet. Okay. <laughs> See, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. All right. So beloved life principle number eight, humility is the most challenging when you think you are right and the other guy is wrong. Have you noticed that when you are, I mean, it's not just when you know you're right. It's when in fact you are right. No, I mean, this happens in life, right? You, it's not just, oh, I guessed correctly. I was right. Oh, and then when you find out later that you actually were right, and then you have that moment of the test of your humility to go and inform the other person <laughs> who happened to be wrong in that case that you were right, you know, that is a great test of humility in that moment, right? Isn't it? Yeah, Barbara. I'll try to be nicer if you'll try to be smarter. Oh, Barbara, say that again. That was, <laughs> I, heard, I only heard the first part there. Yeah, go ahead. Try to be nicer if you will try to be smarter. <sighs> okay, she said, I will, be try, I will try to be nicer if you will try to be smarter. <laughs> okay, so we're going to keep going here now. <laughs> Somehow that rings true, but I just don't know what to do with it in front of everybody. All right. 
Okay, so let's get back to the get back to the reading part. Okay, so so what Paul started with that we that I ended this little uh, phrase with. Go back up to verse five. So he says, "Have this attitude." Obviously, humility is an attitude. So have this attitude in yourselves, which he says was also what in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to describe Christ Jesus in verses six and following. So he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, if you want to and you have something to write with, you can underline that word grasp and put the word stolen. That's what the that's what the Greek is saying. Stolen. So grasp sort of sounds like hang on to stolen has an entirely different uh, uh, sentiment to it. OK, so he did not regard equality with God a thing to be stolen, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. What Paul's pointing out is that Jesus now is the template for humility. And it encompasses all of what humility includes, which is obedience. And submission to whatever it is that is the Father's will for him. And you see, that's the point about that he did not consider the equality with God as something to be stolen. In other words, Jesus did not go through his life resenting why he came. Does that make sense? See, why did Jesus come? Ultimately, to save us by doing what? Dying on the cross. That was already known by him. And so what he didn't do was go through his life somehow trying to subvert that purpose as if somehow, oh, no, I'll do anything for you, for you, God, the father. But that isn't one of them. And to try to circumvent it or to try to undercut it or to try to somehow accomplish his mission to save the world some other way. And that's the point that, that Paul's making, that that becomes our template See, when we're trying to figure out, okay, what does humility look like? And what does obedience look like? And what does all that look like? Oh, where would I look around to find the example of that that I could sort of pattern my life after? Well, there's one. Jesus, that would be like pretty good. Okay. And so we see that in Jesus is that he deliberately, and we see that at different points through his life, at different points, he he refers back to the father's will. And even though it would have been a human struggle to do it, he does it. The best example is in Matthew 26, where he's in the garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that he went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass away, unless I drink it, what? Your will be done. Now, this is not to say that he was overjoyed at the prospect of doing this, correct? Yeah, this wasn't, he wasn't looking forward to this. And, you know, to some degree, the fact that he knew ahead of time that this was going to happen, and very often we can't look into the future the way he could. He could look into the future, and yet what did he do? He still did it. If we looked into the future, we would say, oh, good, I can figure out a way out from under it. 
All right. So Jesus becomes, becomes the, uh, the template. So he emptied himself. The Greek literally says he made himself to be of no reputation. Now you think about Jesus, for example, think how, think what a challenge that would be to intentionally make himself of no reputation, given the fact that he was a high profile figure that no matter where he went and the more he did for people, miracles and, you know, all the stuff that he did and challenging the Pharisees, I mean, all that kind of stuff would have resonated with a certain number of people in in his day. And yet every time there would have been an opportunity for there to be this sort of popular uprising, Jesus squashed it just like that. Can you think of an example from the New Testament where that is a clear example of that? Pardon? When Peter cut off the- oh, in the garden itself. That would be a good example. Yeah. Where Peter was going to attempt to overthrow this thing that was happening by force. And Jesus said, put that sword away. Yeah. I was thinking of another one. Remember when he fed the 5,000? What happened after he fed the 5,000? Everybody is full and they were about to make him king. See, I mean, now you think about it from a human perspective, that would have been the perfect opportunity, right? You've done all this wonderful thing for people. They're about to make you king. That's the perfect scenario, isn't it? To save the world. If you're going to save the world, that's the way I do it. That isn't the way Jesus did it. Yeah, in the back. Well, yet, for his crucifixion, he allowed them to worship him walking it down that mountain. Isn't that amazing? Yes, he allowed it, but he never sought it. And I think that's kind of the difference here. That's an interesting application to this. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, he knew our best thing as we need. Even about salvation, he knows we can save. Yeah. Isn't that kind of crappy? Um, you and you know. Yeah. You not you. I know. That's why he's God and we're not. Yeah, because I don't know if I could live with that. Yeah, Steve. I was thinking his very first miracle was Cana. Yeah, at the wedding. He said, Mom, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was a kid, can't remember how old I was, but I tried that line on my mother. (laughs) Woman is not yet my time. Yes. I still remember the, repeat, the response I got. So just because Jesus is the template doesn't mean you go around quoting him when it's really not a smart move to do. Okay, all right. So the beloved life principle number nine is when you know who and whose you are, you don't have to live for the spotlight. It's nice when you get it, but that's not why you exist. It's sort of this idea that I, this theme that I've sort of been like ramming down your throat for the last like three months on this idea that we are God's beloved. When you know you're God's beloved and you belong to him and you remind yourself that that's enough, that I could lose everything else in life, I would still have that. When you know that and you're living it, the spotlight's nice, but you're not living for it. You might even on some level be a little bit uncomfortable with it, but that's not your goal. That's not why you wake up in the morning is, oh, to see how many people I can charm and to see how many people will tell me how wonderful I am or to see how many uh, likes I get on Facebook, which, of course, we will be going for on our thing, of course. 
And, but I will count on you to help us all remain humble, including me. Okay. That would be a good thing. All right. So, but see, that's the point is that when you know you're loved and you're God's beloved and nothing will change that, then you could lose the adoration of every single person in your life. It would hurt, right? But it would not devastate you. It would not crush you because you would realize that, okay, yeah, sometimes that's the price you pay, but that doesn't change how God feels about you. And that's the beauty of how God feels about you. See, that doesn't change with respect to anything that you might experience in life, including stuff that you do to yourself, which Lord knows we do enough of that. So we go to verse nine. He says, for this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm assuming that this is referencing Judgment Day. I'm guessing. But there could be some aspect of that in this life today. It's just that in this life today, there's a lot of people that will boldly not bow down to in to Jesus's name. The point he's trying to make, I think, is that there is great power in the name itself, that the name itself has power. And that power can compel people. You know, God could compel people to believe in him. And what is amazing to us is that he does not. He offers himself for us to believe in. But we're not robots, and he doesn't say, you know, you don't have any other choice. This is what you're going to do. Bob, did you have a, a question or a thought? He, he will compel all at the great white throne yes. in Revelations 20. Correct. And if, we, if we're thinking that that is in reference to a Judgment Day, then everybody's there. And there aren't any exceptions. And then there will be an acknowledgement of Jesus as the Lord of all, even if you didn't believe in him. Yes, Max. Uh, well, I think we acknowledge the power in his name, too, when we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But sometimes it just gets to be wrote, you know. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Kind of a, oh, in, the Jesus, in Jesus' name, I'm in. You know, and then let, let's eat. You know, it's, I mean, it's like that, right? Yeah. So that's something to be mindful of, I think is that we keep in mind that when we pray in Jesus's name, we're then invoking the power of that name to, uh, to, to place itself upon whatever it is that we're dealing with. Okay. That's a great point. Great point. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. So then at the bottom, he says, so then my beloved, Oh, there's that word beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This is a real troubling word here for Lutherans. Work out your salvation. Anybody having heart palpitations at this moment? Yes, I can sense it in the room. Okay. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul was worried, and he was constantly worried with all the churches that he started, 
that he would stay there for six months to two years, and then he would leave it in the hands of, uh, of a pastor that he had mentored or trained, like Timothy or somebody like that, or that he would just leave it in the hands of the, the leadership there. But he was always worried that when he left and he went to start another church, that in, inevitably there would be problems that would creep up. You know, Paul himself was a very a dynamic person. He was a very, uh, some would say, uh, a bit abrasive Corneal abrasion would have been the right image to fit with Paul's personality. And so that made him a forceful person. And so when he was there, then they would do what he said, you know, and that wasn't a bad thing because they were just starting out and they didn't know and they kind of needed to know. And so that was how it was. But then when he would leave, there'd be kind of a vacuum there. Right. And maybe the people that took on the leadership role weren't nearly as, uh, you know, outgoing as Paul was or maybe as forceful as he was. Maybe they were a little bit more like turtle people, whatever it might have been. And so then, you know, there might have been some leadership vacuum that would have been uh, would have been created. And Paul was always kind of worried about that. And so that's what he's talking about here. Yes. That could have been the reason God let so many things happen to Paul, to humble him, bit by a snake, shipwrecks, on and on. So what you're saying, let me make, let me make sure I understand what you're saying, Glenn, is that Paul was a little bit uppity in his attitude, and so God made all these things happen so that he would get humble. What do you think about that idea? God brings snakes into your life and they bite you in order to help you be humble. What do you think? What? Do what? Yeah, I think so too. I think that would be a good lesson. If you see that in your yard you and suddenly have an infestation of snakes, <laughs> why don't you just get the message before it goes to the full extent? All things work together for the glory of God. Thank goodness. All right. All right. So let's talk about this work out your salvation thing. Because it kind of sounds like that that he's talking about the idea that maybe you're not yet saved, but that you need to work at it. You need to work it out. And then you'll then you can be assured of that. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he's talking to people that already have their salvation. And so what he's saying, in essence, is is to put your salvation and put your belovedness to work in your relationships. That's what he's saying. Work it out. Because that will be tested over and over again. And this always happens in relationships. It's in relationships where we struggle with this because, you know, you get connected to somebody and you're very close and you're very tight. Well, then what's also true is that their imperfections will match up with your quirks. And the two of those together will give you an opportunity to grow in your faith. Right? Have you ever noticed that? Like, if you're, like, attracted to somebody, so if you think of, like, your spouse, if you're married, or if you think about a friend, and you say, oh, it's just my best friend. Oh, we just fit together, like, hand in glove. All right, we all say that stuff, okay? Um, have you ever noticed that the thing that attracted you initially eventually drives you nuts? <laughs> you haven't noticed that? Have you noticed that? This is truth. This is truth. And so it's when it starts to drive you nuts, that's when you get to learn what real love is. 
See, because up to that point, there's nothing testing that. There's nothing challenging that. It's like, oh, oh, so natural. Oh, oh, yes, of course. I hate to do dishes and he loves to do dishes. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah, that's how it is initially, right? But then eventually the truth comes out, right? And the things that attracted you and initially will drive you nuts later. So that's that. And by the way, that works in church. Have you noticed that? The things that you find that really attract you to a certain pastor will eventually drive you nuts. I mean, that's just the way that is. And then when that happens, now we get to discover, each of us get to discover what real love is. What real, real love, not just sort of that sort of facade kind of love. Make sense? Okay, so this is very true in many walks of life. Okay. Beloved life principle. Oh, yes, yes. I think when Paul was probably trying to encourage them to stick with it. Yes. Because our human tendency is just to move on. That's right. We go to another church, we we'll find another mate. Or right. Just find another job. Yes. It's like when the new car smell wears off, right? <laughs> it's the new spouse smell wears off. The new church, the new church smell wears off. No, that's, and in a throwaway society like we have today, the, which everybody's way more into consuming something than they are to contributing to something, it's way too much work to contribute. It's a whole lot better just to go get a new one. Yeah. And they obviously had that then too, so he's actually encouraging them to stick yes. together and work it out. Absolutely. And that's, sometimes, you know, you do your best and it doesn't work. Okay. But that's an exception. And unfortunately, though, in our society today, that's kind of the rule. Yeah. And for a lot of people, why even get married? Because I can have all of that living together with somebody and not be married. Okay. So, and we can talk about that some other time. All right. But you kind of know where I come at, at from that. So beloved life principle number 10 is God loves to love us. What does God love to do? He loves to love you. That's his gig. And you think about it from that perspective. He already knows all the weird things about you. He already knows the imperfections. He already knows all the quirky stuff. He already knows. He knows. And what does he do? He goes, oh, I just love to love you. That's a sweet idea, isn't it? He wakes up in the morning and he goes, well, he doesn't sleep. But let's pretend that he wakes up in the morning. He wakes up in the morning and says, this is going to be a great day because today I get to love you. Ooh, I'm getting shivers. See, now, if you're here, you would see me shiver. <laughs> but that will not be seen on the Internet. So another reason to be here on uh, Sunday morning. Okay, re- beloved life, principle number 11. Responding in faith to God's loving us grows, G-R-O-W-S, grows our gratitude, which in turn then feeds humility, compassion, and courage. See, that's gratitude's a big deal here. Gratitude. But you think in terms of, well, how do you get gratitude? Well, it's that sense of that God gave me something that I couldn't possibly have gotten on my own. That's my dependence on him. And the more that I think about that and let that sort of um, fill me and really consider what your life would have been like without it, because you would have been an orphan then. You know, having no connection to God. And to think about what that would have meant. Gratitude would be something that could flow out of that. And a gratitude-based 
humility and a gratitude-based compassion and a gratitude-based courage, see, then would in turn flow out of that. Does that make sense? So you start to think about how that all fits together in that pretty nice little package. Okay? Very good. All right, we're going to stop here because the next verse says, do all things without grumbling. So, (laughs) and I really don't want to be that good of a person this week. Okay, so we're going to stop here and it's a good good place to stop because it's like at the beginning of this and we'll pick it up next week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com, where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.